Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Robert Farley, senior lecturer at the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce. He's the author of Patents for Power, Intellectual Property Law and the Diffusion of Military Technology. Last year, late last year, in December of last year, the National Defense Authorization Act established the Space Force uh, for the U.S. military, expected to be fully operational sometime next year. Uh, Rob has written a paper for Cato on this subject. It's a very interesting paper, and we're going to discuss it. Um, just to kind of start out with some historical background on the issue, space as a domain of military competition is not a particularly new concept, is it? No, it's not. Um, uh, so the militaries of the world have been have been thinking consequentially about space, um, really sort of almost uh, shortly after they started thinking really seriously about air. Um, it's really in, the, of course, the 1940s that uh, you see uh, militaries using space as a transit point, right? So as a place where you send something and arrives in a different place, and this is a missile, like a, a ballistic missile, like the Germans use in um, uh, at the later stages of World War II, and so the notion that there was sort of this, uh, for lack of a better word, empty space out there that could be used as a transit point to attack targets was obvious by the 1940s, and then by the 1950s, uh, in both the Soviet Union and the United States, there's an increasing understanding that um, space is going to be useful not just as something to th send things through, um, but as somewhere you can have a persistent presence um, that then you know can potentially have transformative effects um, in terms of your ability to uh, do reconnaissance, do surveillance, but also in terms of your ability to communicate. So um, a lot of the basic parameters of how space are gonna, is, is used today are going to be set by the 1950s. And speaking of that period, there was talk back in the Cold War of the kind of space race really being about national prestige or status. And you do make mention of that in the paper. I wanted you to expand on that a little bit. Is that the case this time around too? So it does not feel. It, it does feel like we have uh, we're having a consequentially different use of space by the major powers now than we did in uh, the 1960s. I, I mean, I don't think there's any question that uh, for the Soviet Union and the United States in particular, um, in the 1950s and 1960s and into the 1970s, um, there is very much a national prestige aspect to uh, what the countries are doing, right? Um, there's not really, really any military reason to do things like uh, the Apollo project. Um, there's not much military reason um, to do a lot of the other stuff um, that we do in the early stages and the mid stages of the Cold War in space. Um, now, that stuff is also connected with all of the genuine and real military applications um, that are being worked out um, for the use of space for military purposes, right? So it's not as if um, you're working at orthogonal purposes or conflictive purposes with the civilian prestige-oriented um, space program, because a lot of the technologies that are being developed along the way are dual use. They can be used on either side. Um, but what we have now um, in terms of countries thinking about the militarization of space feels consequentially different than it did in the 50s and 60s, where there was much more of this space exploration aspect, you know, planting a flag here, there, or somewhere else, right? This, in, in, in a way, that the competition has really matured in a military sense. I'm kind of curious about how the organization for this would be planned. You made reference to the fact that different areas of the military do engage in, in space in, as an area. And so how would that work out with a separate space force 
working with all these other departments. And plus, it's also the case you mentioned in the paper, and this might be relevant as well, just how big uh, a part space actually plays in normal life, in our commercial lives and connecting us to people and so on. How is such a thing organized? How can such a thing be envisioned to manage space uh, in, in, as a military domain? So those are three or four really big questions. Um, <laughs> and so I guess um, I will start by making a uh, parallel that a lot of people have made, right? Which is this parallel um, to the founding of the United States Air Force um, and its analogous institutions in, in places like Britain with the Royal Air Force um, and elsewhere. Um, you know, in terms of what the military uh, does in space and what different military organizations uh, do in space, I do not think that it is an exaggeration to say that um, space is absolutely now intrinsically and critically important to everything that every branch of the military does on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, and this is largely because uh, the modern United States military, and, and perhaps somewhat less so in less advanced military organizations, but um, but you know even as we're seeing right now in Azerbaijan and Armenia, we have very space-centric um, uh, conflicts going on, even in a relatively low-level conflict. But the uh, United States military now is deeply dependent uh, on space assets for communication between sort of every uh, different from down to the individual infantrymen up to the F-35, up to um, aircraft carriers and everything else. Um, to keep them in communication with one another, right? Um, I mean, information, in a sense, is now the currency of military power, information about targets, information about capabilities, and space is absolutely fundamental to the transfer of that information, right? So that an infantryman on one part of the front can communicate with a uh, an aircraft or a submarine 800 miles away, and can deliver an effect, right? A missile or something else. Um, and so that communication is absolutely critical to what the US military does. And the other component of this that space provides, that space is really just uh, indispensable for, um, is surveillance. So uh, space assets are not the only assets that uh, the military uses for surveillance, but they're a pretty important part um, of the surveillance picture. And that allows commanders to know where they are, to know where the enemy is, to know what sort of um, effects need to be delivered against what sort of targets. Right? And so all of that is so tightly built into how the military operates today in Army, Marine Corps, Air Force, Navy, um, that it's very, very difficult to really sort of imagine how you would extricate space, how you would take space out because all the services use it so much. So, and I think we can come back to this in a bit, but I also wanted to address your other question. Um, you know, why why has this then become so sort of commercially important? Why is it so important to industry and to, um, uh, you know, the economy more generally? Um, you know, for the same reasons that the military uh, uses space for communications and for data acquisition and so forth, um, these kinds of things have become critical to how industry functions in terms of being able to transfer huge amounts of data uh, real time in a relatively easy manner enables a uh, sort of a degree of supply chain diversification, you know, global supply chain diversification, um, diversi diversification of sources, discovery of sources, connections with the market, um, right, an understanding of what's going on real time in the market that, you know, 
to an extent, the sinews of modern capitalism and the way that capitalism has functioned over the past 25, 35 years, um, we have to absolutely credit to sort of human management of space, right, in terms of putting up a communications infrastructure in space that enables folks in Chicago to talk to people in Beijing about the assets that they have in Jakarta, which, uh, you know, are then dependent upon something else that's going on offshore, but you have, you can talk to the fisherman who's dealing with the problem, right? Um, and so that, sort of the economic gains that come from that are, I think, pretty critical to what we understand as our economy today. So space is, it's not only the foundation now of military power, it's also the foundation of commercial prosperity. I know it's very difficult to tell because this is uh, an organization that is not yet fully up and running, but is there any sense, uh, projections or estimates of how much Space Force might cost? There are some projections um, with respect to cost, but it's it's the reason that the uh, projections are difficult uh, at this point um, is because, uh, at least thus far, space has not by and large, um, been about creating new capabilities. It has been about rearranging capabilities that were already um, in the military um, and that were uh, uh, already mostly in the United States Air Force, right? So Space Force is sort of literally um, a pre-existing organization that um, was within the United States Air Force um, and that, you know, thus far, and this will probably change in uh, the next few years, but um, thus far remains very heavily uh, connected to uh, the United States Air Force. And so the main costs that we're seeing so far um, and the changes in costs are basically the costs that come with any major reorganization. Um, and that is sort of the movement of personnel, the creation of new personnel systems, the creation of new recruitment systems, and so forth. Um, I think that it is going to be a while before we can really get a sort of strong set of cost estimates about what are the costs of Space Force going to be above and beyond what the costs of having Space Command within uh, the United States Air Force were. Um, but I would add, and this is you know part of the piece here, part of part of part of what I wrote is that. We just don't have answers yet to many of the critical questions that um, we should have grappled with before we created this service. Um, and this cost issue is really one of them, right? Um, we, we don't we don't know yet um, what kind of capabilities Space Force is going to create um, and how those capabilities are going to be paid for above and beyond um, what the military otherwise would have done. I mean, Space Force is really, really small, and so the immediate above-board costs aren't that high. The question is, is it something that's going to produce major cost increases over the next two decades as it becomes uh, a more settled, more mature force? Right, because establishing a new bureaucracy means creating a whole new set of internal incentives that can influence policy and the allocation of resources uh, in a kind of parochial way rather than simply solid, straightforward, you know, sort of strategic needs. Um, do you envision problems uh, arising out of that kind of uh, problem? Yeah. So um, if the uh 
experience of the United States Air Force um, is of any utility in evaluating how the Space Force is going to play out, um, then we can anticipate that there are going to be inter-service conflict problems. And inter-service conflict is when there are different services that conflict um, with one another. Um, you know, back in the day when it was the Air Force becoming in independent, um, the problems that were generated between the Air Force on the one hand and either the Army or the Navy on the other hand were driven largely by this question of uh, what do we use the air for, right? Do we use it to support land objectives? Do we use it to support naval objectives? Or does it go and do its own thing? Um, and a lot of the early stories of conflict um, are, you know, basically that the Army is saying quite reasonably, well, we need airplanes, and the Navy is saying we need airplanes, um, and the Air Force is saying we need to use either airplanes for other things. And this is where the Space Force starts stepping into really dangerous ground because you know, what we already talked about in terms of space really being the foundation of what the Army does and the Marines and everyone else do means that um, you have some uh, ready-to-brew conflicts um, as Space Force matures, as it gets to uh, sort of select its own mission um, to recruit its own personnel and pursue, um, build its own culture, pursue its own objectives. Um, you get some ready-made conflicts between the military organizations that are already dependent upon the use of space um, and what Space Force will want to do in terms of its own, uh, its own thing. Um, and this problem is probably even more acute uh, than the problem with the Air Force was. Um, because, you know, while everybody needs air power, um, uh, you can also envision situations where air power can go and act independently. What's odd about Space Force is there has been very little discussion thus far um, about how to make any kind of trade-off with respect to, you know, what we might call intrinsic space missions and the general let's support um, the rest of the armed forces, let's do what we've been using space for, and let's ensure that we can continue to do what we've been using space for. Um, there's a lot of people worried about this. There's a lot of people saying we shouldn't be worried about this. Um, and so that probably means it's a good idea to worry about this in terms of um, you know, straightforward use of military power. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you think this might impact international relations more generally? Does it increase the risk of conflict? Does it kind of initiate uh, greater uh, incentive to compete in space, but, you know, with other great powers? Um, does it impact norm creation or the ability of, say, some leading states to get together and uh, establish treaties that might impose and encourage restraint when it comes to using the military in space and so on. Yeah, so that's, I mean, this is sort of a, I guess, it's kind of a three-part question, and so I'll do my best to answer it in sort of a general order. Um, the United States is not the only country to be doing uh, reorganizations of their space capabilities right now. Um, the French have uh, created what is not quite, but fairly close to Space Force. Um, the Russians have something which, you know, again, it's not organizationally identical to Space Force, but it, it handles many of the same problems. Um, the Chinese have an institution or organization which is not really like Space Force at all, but it does handle um, a lot of space-oriented problems. Um, and so... 
while not many other countries have really sort of gone the independent service route that we've gone, um, all of them, or not all of them, but but most of the major powers are thinking seriously about uh, militarization of space. Um, and I mean, they've been thinking this way for for five or ten years, right? So it would be wrong to say that space force is triggering, at least right now, some kind of race in space capabilities, right? Everything that's happening right now in China and Russia and India is something that was is well within what we projected people would be doing 10 or 15 years ago, right? So it's not not transformative in that sense. Now, moving forward, it might be, right? Because, I mean, there is um, a precedent for countries to look at, say, the United States for, for cues as to what their military organizations should look like. And we might see other countries forming something that looks like a space force because the United States has done it. In terms of generating things like arms races or crisis instability, there is a concern, right? There um, is a concern because arms races are often very service-specific, um, and we can think about this in terms of uh, sort of the great naval races of the 20th century, um, both after World War One uh, and before World War I. Um, we can think about this in terms of the nuclear arms race, the bomber race during the Cold War. Um, the incentives for services uh, are very often are to look at their counterparts on the other side and to then build capabilities intended to dominate um, those counterparts. And so we, we can envision the potential for some spirals um, down the road when we have sort of a clearer picture of, of what offensive missions by Space Force might look like. I mean, right now we have very little very little data or anything like that right now. Um, but I would say that on balance, the creation of Space Force probably makes it more likely that we will see something like arms race dynamics at some point with China or with Russia. Um, that's not a certainty, but it's certainly a possibility and more of a possibility, I think, with Space Force. Um, on the last point, um, you know, there's a lot of noise in this, but uh, historically, when uh, we have been doing arms control, um, and this includes the uh, big uh, naval arms limitation uh, agreements of the early 20th century, and then many of the, the Cold War agreements, um, the services that are being limited, right? So this would be uh, the Navy in uh, the 1920s and the Air Force in the 1950s and the 1960s, um, tend to offer bureaucratic resistance to the arms control uh, arrangements. Um, and this is a cross-national thing. Right? You saw this in Japan, you see this in the UK, you see this in the United States. Um, it's, it is by no means writ in stone that uh, the, uh, the, the, chief of, the chief space officer is going to stand up um, at some point to the president and say, um, it is irresponsible to limit our space capabilities in this way, um, and therefore we shouldn't sign this treaty. Um, but it would not be out of sort with how past military organizations have behaved when they are faced with situations in which um, they themselves are being limited. Right. So multilateral space-based arms control may have a grimmer future with Space Force than it otherwise would. Now, you know, multilateral arms control is not doing all that great right now anyway, and so maybe it's worth it. But, but I think on balance, we would be concerned about its future. I wonder how this works in the context of strategy. I don't, I don't think you went too far into this in your paper, but presumably the, the United States is kind of in the midst of a debate about the role that America should play in the world and what kind of 
strategy should drive our foreign policy. And um, one criticism has been that the United States strategy is uh, almost not a strategy because it doesn't prioritize. It doesn't find a few core interests that it then organizes its efforts around. It's kind of a grab bag of everything but the kitchen sink. And when you don't prioritize, it ends up being virtually everything in the world is a top priority. And so presumably the utility and the use of something like Space Force would manifest differently in a situation where we were pursuing military predominance, primacy, liberal hegemony, whatever you want to call it, versus a much more restraint-oriented approach that, uh, that is not so expansive. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, one of the big differences between uh, Space Force and the Air Force, and also Space Force and, and the Navy, um, is that um, the Air Force and the Navy both have sort of fully worked out visions of how they contribute to American national security. And in, in the Air Force case, this was even worked out um, before the Air Force became a thing. Um, in the Navy's case, it came about halfway through the Navy's history when, when uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan's writings became popular. But those sort of visions of how does my service contribute to national security um, are, in a sense, a strategic. Uh, they, they can fit into a, a bunch of different strategic models, right? So the Navy's Mahanian thinking can work for restraint, right? I mean, offshore balancing, right? Offshore balancing is certainly something that um, it's easy to work and think about in a Mahanian framework. Um, you know, the Navy or the Air Force's strategic air power for decisive effect. You know, similarly, it sounds really aggressive and it definitely formulates how the Air Force thinks. But it can also sort of contribute to a restraint. It can be used in a restrained way. One of the problems and one of the questions we have about Space Force is that um, this debate, right, about the fundamental nature of space power and the fundamental role that uh, military force plays in space hasn't really been worked out yet. Um, uh, that there, there remains like a tremendous amount of work. They are so far behind um, uh, in terms of thinking about the strategic nature of space power and the way that space power contributes um, to the national security of the United States. We're so far behind um, in terms of thinking about that than the Air Force was even in the 1920s. Right? 20 years before the Air Force became independent, it already had a better idea of what it was than the Space Force has today after it has become independent. Um, now, given time, you're going to have a lot of smart people doing a lot of writing, and they're going to come up with ways in which you infuse space power into strategy. Um, and there certainly are ways to think about space power that are completely coherent with a restraint-oriented uh, foreign policy, right? Just what we talked about before, space is incredibly important to the prosperity of the United States, right? To the prosperity of the United States and all of our trading partners around the world, right? The, the, the relatively free use of the space domain is incredibly important to private actors, private firms, individuals, um, to their prosperity, to their well-being. And so you can formulate uh, an understanding of space power, which is sort of fundamentally about maintaining the security of those sinews of uh, the U.S. and the global economy, and then which are you know fundamentally about maintaining American prosperity, right? Maintaining American innovation, um, uh, and so forth, right? Preventing uh, somebody else from disrupting some core functioning of the U.S. economy. Um, 
But of course, you can also think about space power as being uh, something that you can reach out and touch somebody with, right? Um, and whether that's reaching out and touch somebody and touching somebody by um, uh, disrupting or destroying their own space assets, which then sort of disrupt their economy, um, or whether you're thinking about actual terrestrial effects, which Space Force has not really thought a ton about, so far, or at least has not openly talked about a ton so far. Um, but you can sort of work through uh, some of the different areas in which space can contribute um, in both very restraint-oriented and in very, I think, offensive ways. And again, we are so early at this point that uh, it's really a struggle to, to sort of understand what direction they're going to go in. Uh, President uh, Trump has a habit of uh, speaking in the mode of a kind of sales pitch. And when Space Force was um, being talked about, uh, that had the effect, I think, of kind of politicizing uh, the establishment of, of Space Force. And now we have a situation where we've just had a presidential election and uh, um, President, uh, you know, Joe Biden is now president-elect. And the Space Force is not really supposed to be up and running until next year. And so I wonder what you might think uh, this means for the future of Space Force. Is it, is it likely to be orphaned uh, under a Biden administration or continued and expanded? You know, this is a this is a fabulous question from uh, you know an academic organizational theory perspective, right? Which is that um, you know it, had Trump not Korea had not signed the, the paperwork on Space Force and not pushed for it from 2018 on. Um, uh, would you ever have had Space Force in its uh, current existence, or would you have had sort of you know just a different rearrangement of capabilities? within the Air Force, within the Army and Navy, and so forth? And I think the answer there you know, very well might be yes, right? Trump did not, did not start and did not drive the um, thinking that there was the need for a, a reorganization of space assets within the Department of Defense, right? That's been around since 2000. Trump very much drove thinking on the creation of an independent service um, Space Force, United States Space Force. Um, although even then, uh, the independent service is within the Department of the Air Force. So much like the Marine Corps is within the Department of the Navy, um, Space Force is within the Department of the Air Force. Um, and so, you know, the particular formulation of how uh, the, you know, the organizational format of the Space Force does really owe uh, itself to uh, President Trump. And I would be stunned honestly, if President Biden uh, decided to do any work in terms of turning that back. Um, you know, Space Force seems relatively popular. The Air Force um, does not seem all that, the Air Force seems to think that it has sufficiently neutered um, Space Force, and so it's not that much of a danger uh, to take over the things that the Air Force cares about. Um, a lot of the legwork has already been done in transferring personnel and would have to be undone and redone. People would resign and resign in anger if stuff happened. Biden doesn't want any of that. Um, and so my suspicion, and I think what most of the thinking right now is, um, is that the Space Force is here to stay. Um, now, that's not the end of the story, right? Because high-level patronage works and executive preference matters. Um, and so there's a difference between uh, you know, an administration which is absolutely committed to developing space capabilities as rapidly as possible and creates its own independent space force to do that, um, and an administration which you know, just doesn't care that much. Um, 
even then, though, you know, I never really got the sense that the Trump uh, administration and President Trump in particular cared that much about space capabilities beyond um, being able to describe an achievement as founding the Space Force, right? Fundamentally a talking points achievement rather than, uh, you know, a real um, organizational transformation. And so I don't know. I mean, I, if I was a space advocate, if I was a space person, I would not be worried uh, by uh, by President-elect Biden. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be thrilled either, but I would definitely wait and see. Well, the conclusion that it's here to stay is a bit discouraging, given given your primary conclusion in the in the paper that you wrote, which is that you know the start of this was done not only prematurely, but perhaps in a bit of a slapshot way. So. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and then describe uh, what lessons we can draw from those insights for a future Biden administration in shaping a space force. Right. Yeah. No, and, and, uh, I, I guess I am here to discourage people, right? I wrote a book about abolishing the Air Force, right? And so, you know, you read that even if you agree, you're going to be discouraged right off the bat. So, um, so in terms of thinking about the future, um, because, uh, you know, even when I was writing this, uh, sort of suggesting that we didn't ask, answer any of the important questions when we formed this organization, and we don't know it, really know what it, which way it's going, um, beyond the fact that it's going to be going to be hard to get rid of, um, uh, absent a major reconfiguration of all U.S. military capabilities. Um, you know, is that that uh, we need to be pretty careful about how we organize our military forces because you know as you pointed out um, every time you create a, a new organization it creates a new set of institutional and bureaucratic incentives um, and you know the reason that you ask the military to create a new organization to protect certain kind of capabilities is because you don't think that anybody in the military is taking it seriously enough so you create an air force because you don't think that um, the Department of Defense is taking air seriously enough. And so you want to create career paths, you want to create dedicated funding, um, and so you want to create a home, a bureaucratic home for people. Um, you know, I, it struck me really that in this last decade, pretty much everybody was on board that space was going to be really, really important, right? That there was not this lack of understanding in the military about the importance of space. That, you know, in fact, there was a lot of agreement that this was going to be um, really critical. Um, and that uh, even among the advocates for reorganization, uh, before President Trump, there weren't really a lot of people arguing for this particular solution which is the creation of this uh, independent service under the Department of the Air Force. I mean, I think going forward, we have to be we have to watch with uh, very close attention, um, you know, two uh, potential problems that the Space Force may have. And in some sense, these are a Scylla and a Charybdis problem. Um, uh, on the one hand, um, Effectively, Space Force was able to come into be, being in its in its current structure um, because it was made non-threatening to the other services, and in particular to the United States Air Force. Right, and so uh, there is some concern that uh, we have created a space force that uh, will now not be really be allowed to do anything particularly useful beyond what it was already doing as part of the Air Force. Um, 
and, you know, and even that it, it might create a situation in which the other services shunt aside critical missions and sort of hand them to the Space Force, assuming the Space Force can manage them, um, while Space Force is trying to do its own thing, right? So you have, we have, that we have effectively created an appendix that might go bad by creating Space Force, right? That might then lead to problems with the, you know, an under-resourced organization not being able to do all the missions that the other services are now going to be willing to pile upon it, right? So that's that's your Charybdis. Your Scylla, and your Scylla I think is a little bit more dangerous, um, is that uh, the Space Force will uh, sort of build up the characteristics and take on some of the same behaviors that the Air Force took on um, just before and just after um, its inception, right? And uh, these behaviors are basically, um, you know, thinking about the particular domain that the force is uh, equipped to deal with, space, being the only decisive domain of warfare, right? And starting to think about um, uh, offensive, uh, decisive doctrines, right, where you may have space Space officers, you know, insisting that uh, control of the space um, is what essentially enables national power, um, and that any investment in capabilities which are not space capabilities is essentially a waste. Um, and right, sort of to prove that point, de- developing offensive capabilities, right? Um, so things where we can reach out and touch people. You know, whether we're reaching out and touching them in space or again, um, and I don't really want to talk about rods from God or anything like that, but other ways in which um, you can think about delivering effects from space to the ground, um, there is a concern there because that appetite becomes voracious really, really quickly um, in terms of costs and resources, um, especially to build from almost nothing. Um, the United States, the Defense Department is not now well-equipped even to negotiate resource conflicts between the existing services, much less adding a fourth service in that will have to be fed. Um, And this is also where we might see some negative international effects, right? A a space force being sort of really forward-thinking and really offensive thinking and really sophisticated and innovative about its own mission is one that also potentially creates a dangerous situation with other countries who decide that they need to develop space capabilities that match ours. Um, So, you know, we have created a problem for ourselves where we have to avoid either a rump organization that is not very good at uh, even the limited mission that we are piling upon it, or a uh, Godzilla of an organization which kind of wants everything um, and is uh, very forthright about pursuing its ends, um, uh, both internationally and domestically. Boy, that's a happy pair of potentialities. (laughs) Just out of curiosity, did you watch the Netflix uh, Space Force satire? I did. I did, yeah. Um, Good points. I didn't actually watch it. um, Or is it just silliness? No, no, it's not just, I mean, there's a lot of silliness. Um, it hit on, uh, it will be more funny to people who spend very much time uh, sort of in the national security state, because it did hit on um, a lot, it got a lot of cultural elements about the military right, and a lot of cultural elements about the sort of the reaction of the military to um, this new service right, um, in a, uh, you know, in a, in a very, uh, Sometimes an awkward way, sometimes a funny way. Um, you know, the problem is that uh, you can't make mash today, right? Because there's not enough people in the country who uh, have any idea of what the world that mash is trying to depict are going to look like, 
And so something like Space Force, which even gets a little bit of that culture right, um, is welcome in some ways. And most of the military personnel and national security personnel who I know, who've watched it, really enjoyed those bits of it, right? People who are outside that world, you know, saw sort of awkward cringe comedy in a lot of places, which is an entirely fair critique of the show. Rob, thank you very much for, for being my guest and talking to us a little bit. I recommend his paper to my audience. I also recommend his book about abolishing the Air Force. If you like Cato stuff, we tend to start sentences with abolish this, that, and the other thing. Uh, you, you'll, you'll be plenty interested. Uh, but that is all the time we have for today. Thank you to our production team, uh, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Jonathan Allen. Uh, thanks to you all for listening. And as always, continue the conversation on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at CatoFP. If you like the show, leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.